Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, do not adjust your devices. This is a sanctioned takeover of the Investor Download. My brilliant colleague, David Brett, has kindly offered up his seat in the presenter's chair. My name is John Mensack, and I'll be your host for the next couple of podcasts. Late last year, our global chief investment officer, Johanna Kirkland, co-wrote a research report arguing that investors are facing a new set of financial market conditions. We're referring to it as the 3D Reset decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographics. What does this all mean? Well, we think it will lead to higher inflation for longer, more active fiscal policy, a new world order challenging globalization, a faster response to climate change, and labor shortages driving technology investment. In brief, we're asking investors to consider what they've done for the last 10 years and think about doing the opposite going forward. So for this podcast, we're going to focus on the impact on commodities of the 3D reset. To help guide us through the possible implications are two experts and two of my brilliant colleagues, Jim Luke. So I'm Jim Luke. I'm a a commodities portfolio manager here in London, focused in terms of fundamental research and portfolio management on the the metal space. So that includes industrial metals uh, and precious metals. And Malcolm Melville. Malcolm Melville here. I started my investment career way back when in the Asian crisis in 1997. And I've been investing in commodities, um, looking at commodity markets uh, for about 20 years now. I start with a question to Jim asking, to what extent has central bank resolve been evident in getting on top of this current wave of inflation? If you look in parts of the emerging market universe, as you know very, very well, John, in, in, in Brazil, we have uh, rates up about 13%, 11 to 13% in general in Latin America. I was talking to Nick Brown uh, this morning in our EMD team in London, uh, who, who, who was saying that in Hungary now we're up at 18%. Um, of course, if you look at the US, also we've had the, we've had the, the largest and the sharpest increase uh, in interest rates since since the early 1980s, the 500 basis points of, of rate increases uh, since the end of 2021. So it's 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 hard to argue uh, that central bankers have not prioritised uh, inflation over growth. But I think I think for me, what's going to be interesting in terms of this debate is the extent to which that can last. Because I think between us all, we can probably agree that prioritising inflation over growth. When you have close to full employment, um, when you have very strong underlying economic uh, growth dynamics, particularly in the US, uh, but you do have inflation way above target, is not a very difficult choice. So for us, I think the big debating point is what will happen when perhaps the cyclical elements of the economy, are particularly the employment picture and maybe even the financial stability picture, which we've been seeing a lot recently in the US with the regional banking issues, um, when when those factors clash a bit more explicitly with that inflation target. Yeah, so may, maybe uh, not mission accomplished, but the first the first leg of this, the central banks have come out of it looking pretty good. I, so, I, I mean, I mean, ahead. for me, honestly, John, do we really think they've come out looking good? I mean, we'd, pro- we'd probably have to say that the Fed made one of the biggest mistakes in history in 2021 
by not tightening earlier, by continuing to run ultra-loose monetary policy in the face of you know, already full, employment, uh, full uh, employment and a booming US economy. So you, know, you could argue, you could play devil's advocate and argue that what they've done is restore an element of the credibility that they were rapidly losing uh, in 2021. So maybe, maybe that would be a, maybe I'm being a little uncharitable there, but maybe, maybe that would be my take. No, I think that's that's right, Jim. And you can also argue, I think, that central banks did not see this wave of inflation coming. Absolutely. And they've probably, they've been running to catch up and maybe they get some credibility now because inflation is coming down. But then, as Jim says, the question is, that choice will get more difficult. And if inflation doesn't go back to target, then they'll have to choose. And in highly indebted economies, the chances are maybe they're on the side of, 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 of caution and prioritise growth. And in that world, that probably is, is a world where inflation is stickier and commodities, commodities probably perform. Okay, so is it fair to say then that uh, you, both of you have some skepticism with respect to if developed central banks can get back to that sort of quasi 2% official inflation target range. Is that right? Yes. Personally, I doubt we'll get there. If we do get there, I think we'll be there momentarily, very briefly, Mm. depending on how strong you know, the cyclical downdraft is in coming quarters in the US and, and, and in the EU uh, in particular. And, and it goes back to exactly that point that Malcolm just made, because ultimately, uh, if the other part of the Fed's dual mandate uh, employment uh, is absolutely fine uh, and you continue to see disinflation, then of course we, we will get to target, no problem at all. But it seems very unlikely given the early signs of stress in the US economy, the early signs of stress in the labor market, um, that by the time headline inflation gets down to anywhere near that 2% target, you won't already have you know, pronounced increases in, in, in unemployment uh, and the knock-on effects of that uh, in, into, into the broader policy picture. So, so for us, I think it's a very, very narrow window. And the probability is that by the point the Fed has to act, in order to make sure it's getting anywhere near meeting the other part of its mandate, you know, probably inflation won't be back at target. I think there's another dynamic, too, coming out of COVID, right? And I, we're going to get to gold in a second here. But uh, certainly the developed market fiscal response was uh, more than robust and relative to emerging markets. I mean, it was it was uh, many fold uh, times more aggressive. Um, at this point, how tempted do you think developed central banks will be to accept, just literally accept a, a somewhat higher level of structural inflation going forward in order to help monetize their elevated levels of debt? I, th- I think I think for me, the way I look at it personally is, you know, I don't really think the Fed uh, or central bankers in general in other developed markets are having kind of behind the scenes uh, discussions with you know, political uh, leaders or, or fiscal leaders um, or, or their, their, their relevant ministries of finance or in the US, the Treasury, uh, in order to come, you know, come up with some kind of um, compact that ultimately they need to, uh, they need structurally higher inflation to bring debt to GDP down. Um, for me, I, I believe at face value, 
people like, for example, Kashkari, Neil Kashkari, who, who has held at various town halls, has been asked that question directly and has said very clearly, look, when it comes to the Fed, the Fed has a dual mandate. The mandate is full employment um, and inflation. Uh, the, the debt issues, the fiscal issues that are clearly very prominent and I think are an absolutely huge issue in the, in the States are, are secondary. And they, they are the concern of, of Congress, their concern of, of the White House. And ultimately, it is up to the Treasury um, how, those, how those fiscal issues um, are contended with. So I don't, really, I don't really believe that the central banks themselves are actively or consciously thinking about that uh, as a target. But what I really do think is that you know, ultimately they're not going to really have a choice um, yeah. because the kind of the, in, the negative impact of having uh, such high debts and running such high deficits is that by the time you get to a cyclical downturn and by the time deficits have widened materially from, say, the 5% they're at today in the United States domestically uh, or in a recessionary scenario to 8 9%, now, the, the, the absolutely inevitable consequence of that is that Treasury, treasury issuance will be have, to have to massively increase uh, to fill that gap, and which raises the question of who ultimately will buy that issuance. And, also, you know, and, and the Fed has ultimately to guarantee the financial stability uh, and implicitly, if not ever explicitly, the solvency of the Treasury. So in answer to that rhetorical question, who would actually end up buying that, providing that liquidity? I think the answer ultimately will be the Fed. Um, so I, 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 think, I think, yes, clearly the Fed is going to be looser than they would like to be just based on their inflationary mandate earlier because of some of these debts and deficit dynamics that are in play in the U.S. economy currently. What does this all mean for gold then? And let, let's just use gold as a proxy for uh, commodities in general and and say if we're going to be running at a somewhat higher level of inflation, uh, what does that mean for the gold brick? I, mean, I think for gold, if, if you look at the relationship between gold and core macro financial variables in the, in the post-2008 world, the two strongest by far have been U.S. real interest rates, number one, uh, and then number two, um, the U.S. dollar. Uh, but really, real interest rates have been uh, the most powerful driver. So I think that you know the, the, the question, um, you, you can frame the question to the, to the extent that if you are going to see uh, central banks forced to loosen earlier than they would in previous cycles, uh, and you're going to see inflation more entrenched structurally, then from our perspective, you should expect to see lower real interest rates, which should be positive for gold. But to be honest, that's a, that's a, that's a very kind of academic way, quite a rigid way to view the gold market. And, and, and to an extent, the price action in gold in 2022, where real rates in the US went from negative 100 to positive 150 on, on, on the 10-year, and gold actually performed pretty resiliently, kind of suggests that even there, some of those relationships are changing. So for us... You know, I think that the better way to, to frame the argument for gold when you come at it purely from a macroeconomic uh, perspective is more just through the lens of normalization, true normalization. So if, if John, for example, you believe you, you, you know, all of your faith uh, lies with the Federal Reserve, you genuinely believe that they're masters of the universe, they have this under control, uh, and they can, they can engineer a true normalization 
uh, of monetary policy uh, and a return to the world, uh, a return to a world where you know, normal business cycles are just regulated by monetary policy uh, and, and there are no negative um, you know, side effects onto, onto employment um, or financial stability. And you know, I think that's, that's a, not a particularly rosy outlook for gold. But if you think like we do, that fundamentally, as we just discussed, some of those macro pressures that stand um, behind current policymakers, particularly the current state of, the, of US fiscal affairs, particularly the, the elevated levels of debt uh, across the, well, both in terms of public debt, but also in terms of uh, entrenched uh, uh, required entitlement spending. If you think that those factors really push policymakers away from the norm, kind of a normal policy response and actually push them back towards unconventional policy responses, either direct monetization of, of debt, you know, the resumption of quantitative easing, ultimately in a downturn, potentially the resumption of kind of fiscal programs, direct fiscal programs, then I think that is an environment that is, that is potentially much, much more explosive uh, for gold. So I think, and, and to that extent, you know, you could, you could, you could make the point that to some extent, when viewed through that lens of normalization, gold is, you know, to some extent, a barometer of the credibility of those institutions. So the lower the credibility of the Fed goes, the more extreme the policy responses come from monetary and fiscal policymakers, I think the stronger the case for gold uh, grows against that. I mean, you know, we have to, when we go back to that, that idea of normalization, I mean, it, it, it is becoming apparent that you know, the, the expansion of central bank balance sheets, particularly the Fed, is not a temporary measure. We go back to 2008-2009 and Bernanke was absolutely explicit. This was a temporary measure and would be normalized. Now, this is some, some $9 trillion later. How temporary do we think it is now? What do we think would happen to that balance sheet in the event of another downturn? What just happened to the balance sheet you know, a month ago in response to a regional banking crisis. It went straight back up again. So there, there, there are underlying systemic stresses here that really make some of these short-term issues a complete sideshow, the, the debt ceiling being, being the most obvious one. Um, so, so, yeah, that's the way we think about it, John. If you, if you think things are going to be fine, we're going back to a kind of a normalised monetary policy regime that we had through the great moderation, then then don't worry about gold. If, 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 you're, if you're slightly more sceptical like we are, then... Gold definitely has a place, as, as does the broader commodity complex. It sounds like we're uh, it's the triumph of hope over experience is, <laughs> is, is what we're looking for here, as they say. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. The rise of the petrodollars in the 1970s was based upon implicit U.S. security guarantees in the Mideast. Um, that seems to be wavering a little bit right now. What developments are challenging this? John, I think it's it's a very interesting debate that the, the role of that, that system is going to play going forward, which has been in place for the last 40 years. So if we take a step back, that system really came in post the Yom Kippur War in uh, October 73. And as you say, is that ex as the kind of the, the guarantee where the US would provide security to those in the Middle East in return for uh, oil being priced in dollars. And then those dollars would then get recycled into US assets, whether it be fixed income or equities and help fund US deficits. 
But I think there's a number of reasons to think that that relationship and that kind of system where oil was primarily placed in priced in dollars is going to be challenged going forward. And I think firstly, from the US perspective, the US need for this system, which has been in place for the last 40 years, is reduced somewhat, given the US is now the number one producer of oil in the world as we stand at the moment. It's still important to the US, but less so. I think the second reason I was highlight really is that from the supplier's point of view, from the Middle East point of view, they want to build strategic relationships with India and China. If you think about the growth of those economies over the last 20 years, they are very important now in the global context. And having strategic partnerships with those is, is increasingly important to many in the Middle East. And you see that particularly from Saudi Arabia. And then thirdly, you have Russia. Now, Russia clearly wants to avoid, especially post the invasion of Ukraine, they want to avoid anything to do with the dollar. And you, uh, Russia is roughly 10% of global oil supply we see as we stand at the moment. And the pressure for Russia to deal and transact in oil in any currency but the dollar is there. And that really feeds into that narrative of countries moving away from using using dollars in the commodity space. And finally, I'd probably point to um, to China, really. So China now consumes 15, 16 million barrels a day, 15% of global oil, um, and they want to make their currency more international. So they are pushing for uh, oil to be priced where they can in Remembi, and we, we saw that come in last year for the first time. So there's a number of different factors at work. It's still important. It's still important to the US. It's still important to the Middle East, but it's just much less important than it was. And I think we can see that petrodollar system generally being eroded in years coming forward and, and oil trading in other currencies apart from just the US dollar. What yeah. is very clear, I think, in the last year or so is many of the key producers, and I would put Saudi Arabia at the forefront of this, will very much do what is in their own interests. It's kind of OPEC plus first. And this is really driven by their very aggressive domestic agendas. If you think of the Saudi Vision 2030 plan, which is all around reducing dependency on oil, increasing the health system, increasing the education system, increasing tourism, that is incredibly expensive. It's estimated that the break-even for this year in the Saudi budget is about $80, $81 a barrel. And that really puts them on pressure to really focus on what policy is best for Saudi Arabia in a way that before the primary consideration, one could argue, would what would be best for our strategic partners, such as the US. And I think that's a dramatic shift we're seeing. So the influence that the US have on the price of oil is, is being diminished. And you see that with the criticism laid by the Biden administration at the door of OPEC recently following those recent, recent cuts, is that's not what the West wanted in, in an era when inflation is deemed as too high. But OPEC plus led by Saudi Arabia did it anyhow because it is in their interests to do so. So 15 months ago, Malcolm, when Putin's tanks rolled into Ukraine, uh, there was some speculation that Russia would have a real problem exporting its oil. And I, I confess, I was uh, one of those people, I was in that camp, but that's 
ended up being a little bit of a naive viewpoint, <laughs> is it not? Yeah, John, I was in that camp too. Uh, I really did think that Russia would struggle to find a home for, for, for its soul when all those sanctions came in from the West. Uh, and the reality is that hasn't been the case. The, the, the main buyers we've seen is India and China. And I think the primary motivation really, and the thing that, that we got wrong and many in the market also got wrong was Russian oil trades at a $25 discount to international oil. And cheap oil, cheap energy for India, for China, for many countries <clears throat> is really too good to miss. So they really have taken that advantage of those lower prices. And if you look at the Western sanctions regime, it is actually set up with exactly this goal in mind, the twin goal of reducing the flow of dollars of, of, of capital back to Russia, but at the same time, ensuring Russian oil flows onto the market to depress it, keep inflation. The last thing the West wanted through the sanction regime on Russia was to restrict oil supply and see inflation and energy prices spike. And you have to say, for all the skepticism, that I was skeptical about whether this system would work, it is working incredibly well. Russia's oil trades at a $25, $30 discount, but it continues to flow pretty much at exactly the same rates we were. And that really has put a cap on, on the cap on oil prices so far. And I think it explains some of the weakness we've seen in the oil price over the last 12 months or so. So they're making revenue. They're not making a ton of profit uh, because yes, of that. Is exactly. that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it, to your point, that's what the West wanted was for the the flow to the taps, keep the taps on, but keep the profits down. Don't fund the war machine. What do those recent OPEC plus production cuts mean for crude's uh, risk premium going forward? I think they mean two things. I think that the the price you see on the screen of oil should be have a, a risk premium in the sense that OPEC plus is a major supplier, the major dominant supplier really to the oil market. And their cut, which was an intra-meeting cut, it wasn't at their reg regular framework, really suggests that they have the ability to change the supply of an absolute key commodity as and when they see fit. And that is very difficult to predict. I don't think there's anyone really outside that core group who has any visibility on that. And therefore, the price of oil should reflect that risk premium. And the second point, I think, really, that which highlighted by those, those OPEC cuts is, in my mind, it really puts a floor under the oil price. We talked earlier about those fiscal constraints that, that Saudi Arabia have, which are shared by many OPEC members. And I really think if oil prices would fall materially below where we are, we're kind of low to mid-70s at the moment, if they were to get into the 60s, then you would see another supply response. So I think they... That policy statement, that cutting of that supply really shows, it really puts a floor in the oil price. So you should have a bit of a premium now, but it really means that downside in oil prices, you've got to think is, is limited from where we are. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. When it comes to climate transition, uh, all roads lead through commodities. I think that's pretty obvious. And we're going to focus specifically on copper, which is a key metal uh, in, in energy transition. And, and Jim, Luke, it's been said that copper is actually the key metal to energy transition. How so? Because, because of its role uh, as, a, as an irreplaceable uh, conductor uh, of electricity. 
which basically leads to, as we've pretty much all heard many times now, uh, increased usage per unit, so increased intensity of usage uh, in things like in electric vehicles, uh, but also increased intensity of, of, of usage uh, per megawatt of installed capacity. Uh, if you compare, for example, uh, solar plants uh, or offshore onshore wind plants uh, in terms of copper intensity versus conventional uh, power sources, uh, they just use uh, a lot more metal. Uh, and, th and that really is, is, is why uh, from, from an energy transition perspective, even, for example, if you were to shift around with battery cathodes and EVs, so you to use a bit more manganese, a bit less, a bit less nickel, for example, still, you're not going to be able to get away from, from using quite a significant amount of copper in that vehicle. Uh, so I, I think really that's where a lot of the excitement comes from. Now, we've heard a lot this year about recent supply disruptions. Uh, can you give us a sense of whether this is to be expected going forward or have we seen the worst of things? Uh, I, th I think in terms of 2023, uh, the disruptions that we saw starting in late Q4 and running through Q1 got up just about to record levels. So we're talking 7%, 8% uh, of global mine supply being, being disrupted uh, at a given point. Uh, and that, that compares to a kind of typical disruption rate in an, on an annual basis, say, four to five. Um, so for 2023, I think probably things will get better from here. Uh, but I think structurally, uh, that question of disruption, to an extent, dovetails with, with, with the subject of our next podcast in terms of geopolitical stability and regional stability in, in areas where copper is produced, particularly Latin America. Um, but then particularly, it will come down to the political situations in places like Peru, uh, in places like Chile, both in terms of national politics uh, and in terms of some of the, the community issues that, that miners often, often face in those regions. Is there enough copper available to satisfy the needs of the energy transition plans of all the countries? I, I think you can confidently say that, yes, there is enough copper um, the great arbitrator of, of, of copper supply and demand, as in any commodity, is always price. Right. Um, uh, you know, if, if you spent a while looking at uh, commodity markets or copper in particular, it can get a little bit frustrating to hear some of the hype um, that gets pushed out, particularly around the copper market from some, some major producers, some ma major promoters, but also some academics. I think, I think what history shows is that at a given price, there will always be a way for the markets to balance. Uh, and we can go back to the early 2000s and prove over and over again um, that the, the theoretical peak in copper supply is always two to three years out. Uh, and that is no different today um, than it was in 2010 or 2015. Um, the question then is how healthy uh, is that supply pipeline uh, that we have in front of us and what type of copper price would we need to actually yeah. incentivize producers uh, to bring that stuff to market against a backdrop of very, very significant uh, ESG constraints, uh, geopolitical constraints, grade constraints, and you know, geologic constraints. Uh, and I think there you can you can make a very, very rational case that if you believe, if you if you even believe that the compound uh, average growth rate of, of copper demand can be 1.52% going forward, uh, you know, backed up by a, a raft of global uh, climate mitigation 
policies, then I think there is a very credible argument to be made that copper prices need to be substantially higher in order to incentivize that supply in, in into the market. But but you know, are are we are we going to be facing a you know a, a, a critical shortage of or a geopolitically destabilizing shortage of, of copper, which I think was a quote from S and P Global uh, a couple of weeks ago. On that on, on that sense, I, I I would stay a bit cynical. So I'd call I would call myself a cynical bull when it comes to copper supply. <laughs> the best kind of bull for sure. <laughs> uh, so I guess these comments of copper, uh, any of these energy transition metals, uh, are, are they kind of fall in along the same lines? Is that correct? Um, in, in terms, of, I mean, the supply picture. It varies by metal. The bottlenecks yeah. in different places, um, but broadly speaking, I mean, I mean, I guess one contrast you you could make would be that some the production, particularly the refined production of some metals, is more concentrated uh, than others. Um, so, for example, rare earth materials, ninety five percent plus of that is still processed and refined uh, in China. Uh, the, the number for lithium remains very very high. So there are clearly some strategic issues there. Um, um, but more broadly, I mean, you can see with the raft of, of legislation from from the the um, you know from from both the EU uh, and with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in the US that this this is something uh, that that is that is that is becoming much much more highly prioritised as, as the global geopolitical situation becomes more fraught. Okay, excellent, and always a chance for certain countries to strategically stockpile inventories and. Um, it's just not going to be as smooth a world going forward as we've seen in the past. Is that correct? I mean, you would think so. You would think that yeah. if, if you had your eyes on the future and you and you and you had the view that U.S.-China relations were going to get worse, then you 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 would hope that policymakers would look at the supply of things like rare earths and some of these 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 these, these base metals and think it would probably do me good, both from an industrial complex perspective and from the military industrial complex perspective. To have a decent buffer on hand, so you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see governments move in that direction at all, and and I would be slightly worried if they don't from a security perspective. Okay, so Malcolm Melville, Jim Luke, that's going to do it for this podcast. I thank you for your time and and obviously your great insights. Uh, and to the listener, we certainly hope that it was time well spent for you. I do invite you to listen in to our Commodities as a Geopolitical Hedge podcast coming out very soon. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 